Today is a two-part episode. Part one dropped yesterday, October 16th, on Dr. Amy Vertree's podcast, Business of Surgery series. I've really been enjoying Amy's podcast. It has lots of great content for all physicians, and you don't have to be a surgeon to enjoy her podcast. Dr. Vertrees is a veteran of the Army. She's a surgeon and certified life coach. She's also author of the book, Become the Boss MD. She started the Boss series to share the necessary skills that were not taught in residency. Dr. Vertrees was a complete joy to speak with. She is so insightful, has such energy about her, and I wish she was the surgeon I was calling all the time for my consults. I, I just loved talking with her, and I believe she has so much to teach us about how we can doctor better. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revitalizing Doctor podcast. We interview trailblazers in medicine that embody the revitalized women vision to empower women to innovate and influence medicine to value authenticity, respect, and work-life harmony. We recognize the challenges in medicine, and we're committed to providing coaching-informed strategies to help you go from surviving to thriving. I am thrilled today to have Dr. Amy Vertrees with me. I have been hearing about her from all sorts of wonderful people that I've been bumping into at conferences that you've got to talk to Dr. Amy. And so here she is. She's here on the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you, Dr. Austin. I appreciate being here. Please call me Andrea. We like to keep it cash on the pod. We like to start out with what I call your doctor origin story. Why did you become a surgeon? It's a great question. So I was in college. So at Georgia Tech, I skipped my senior year of high school. So I went to college early and I don't think I ever actually learned how to study, but I always want to be a doctor. I was the president of our pre-med society, you know, I was ready to go. But when it came down to applications, I applied and I think just kind of choked and Ended up going to graduate school instead, which was probably the best thing that I did because I learned how to learn. I was in the cell biology and anatomy program at Medical College of Georgia and did microsurgery on chick embryos and also on, on mice for research on development. I work with Peggy Kirby, who discovered neural crest cells that formed the division between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. So that was, uh, I think, a really pivotal moment of, of not just wanting to be a doctor, but, but clearly wanting to be a surgeon. So after that, I took a, you know, a little bit of a detour, finally got back on track. But I think graduate school is really where I learned how to learn. So when I was ready to go to medical school, my dad was in the military. So I found at the, in Kaplan, like USAS being the best kept secret in medicine. I'd never heard of it. I mean, as you know, like it's, it's kind of hidden up in Bethesda, Maryland. And it sounded really interesting. And I was kind of ready for something interesting and different. So that's how I ended up at USAS. And I was there when September 11th happened. And in between our first and second year of medical school, we had to do a military experience. So we just knew what the military was like because we were commissioned officers in the military. And I was chosen from our class to be the White House rotation, which only happens for one person in the class. And I was very disappointed because they were switching over administrations and I couldn't go. They said they weren't going to accept a student that year. So I ended up going down to Tampa and hanging around with Central Command, which covers the Middle East in the oh, summer wow. of 2000. So, or 2001. 
Right. So I heard all about all the people. I followed the path that a general would go to be uh, prepped for briefing Congress and things like that. I heard about all the things going on in the Middle East. The only thing that had happened at that point was the USS Cole. And my job was to help with the Annex Q, which, I mean, I was a first year medical student. I wasn't doing anything. They were humoring me, but whatever. But I did decide to help them out because special ops is down there as well. Yep. So they knew that they wanted the special ops medics to be for, further forward. They wanted practice with IVs. So one thing that I did do when I was there was to link them up with a junior college and help getting IVs, which was really remarkable because when I went back to school, as you know, like September 11th happened. And so that was kind of interesting to be a part of history accidentally. Uh, it came from, interestingly enough, a disappointment of not being able to do the White House job, which I thought was really cool. So I ended up doing something even cooler. So I ended up going to Walter Reed and I was there at the height of the wars. So I started my general surgery residency in 2004. And it's just interesting how it all unfolded because it was sort of following the path that life led. And it was sort of led by disappointments in one ways, but it turned out exactly as it was supposed to be. So I've really been just so pleased with my path, becoming a surgeon. I knew I went exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to be at Walter Reed. And I remember talking to my program director, who's going to be my program director. And I said, this is the only place I want to be. I'm not interviewing anywhere else. And he said, okay. And I ended up going to Walter Reed. I love that. So then you went to Walter Reed for residency. It was the height of the wars. And for some of our listeners, they may or may not know that Walter Reed was a major receiving center. You know, the various echelons of care, eventually, you know, most people after being injured in Iraq or Afghanistan go through Landstuhl and then they often landed at Bethesda. When I was there, I was in D.C., so the Naval Medical Center and the Walter Reed Army Medical Center were separate at the time. It was only after I finished residency that we combined. Oh, that's right. That's right. And so I'm guessing, given the time that you were serving, you also deployed. I did. I went to Afghanistan twice and Iraq once. Wow. Did you do a full career, 20 years? No, and I was in for 17 years. 17 years. Interesting. As a general surgeon, though, we were deploying every other year. And I had young kids at the time. I think I missed almost two years of their life. And at some point, it became a little bit too much. And so when my commitment was up um, after seven years beyond residency, uh, I decided to go into the civilian life for a bit. Right, right. So that's how you got into surgery. And then a lot of things happened Mm -hmm. that we're skimming over. I could do a whole episode on your deployments. Then you came back and maybe it's a little bit like me. It's like, okay, I'm getting out of the military. My life's about to really begin and it's going to be amazing. What happened? That's a great question because you know the Boss Business of Surgery series started in 2015 and I was chair of our Young Surgeons Committee for the American College of Surgeons. And the beautiful thing about being in the DC area is that there's so many residencies there too. Our chapter was so robust and, you know, I just worked with some amazing people and we were frustrated trying to get people to meetings. And, you know, I was looking ahead and wanting to get out of the military. And there were so many things that I just didn't know. I didn't know about contracts or negotiating, you know, basic finance stuff. I had a fascination with all those, but I said, if, you know, if I need to know it, other people probably do too. And our chapter was a little frustrated. People were coming to meetings. And so I said, I mean, you just have to have something to offer. So um, I did a few things for the chapter. 
I maintained the tradition of having our annual abside review class. So I ran that. Then I added oral boards coaching to help with that because that's always intimidating. And then I started these meetings and I called it the Boss Business of Surgery series saying like, we're going to talk about the business things that are not taught in residency. So that idea was born in 2015. And much like anything, when you're doing something that no one else is doing, it's a little intimidating. So I had a website, I had meetings, and they were in person. And it was it was still difficult, even with good value, to get people to come in person. So I was preparing for my third deployment, and it just kind of fizzled out a bit. And I didn't pick it up until 2020. So what happened in between? I mean, I've listened to some of your podcasts, and you talk about the importance of physicians being able to be advocates for themselves, to be able to have more agency. Did you always have that or did you develop it? It was definitely, you know, a development over time. I don't know if anyone else thinks this way, but I've always been just kind of interested in how things work and learning how the process works and all the things, you know, even in the military, when coding wasn't all that important, I started realizing that that's how we get paid. You know, that's, our common language. And so I developed an interest in that and was always interested in finance and money and and how things work. And I really liked influencing other people and leadership and, you know, really figuring out how to make things work the best way they possibly can. So that was always an underlying interest. So that is kind of how it started. And so when I came into the civilian land, I mean, I had no idea what to expect. And I basically chose the job that mimicked what I really liked in my residency, which was at a community hospital. So the old Walter Reed that was in DC, the general surgeons did everything. And I mean, I had amazing training. I can't even really just underemphasize how important that was. I really felt well prepared for everything. We did a rotation at Andrews Air Force Base. And so that was another community experience. So when I got out of the military, I really wanted to be part of a community hospital. So I found the ideal location in, in Tennessee, and I really liked the hospital. And what was really frustrating to me was, you know, the OR went great and, and all the things were going really well. But I found a lot of frustration with the clinic because I liked to know how things ran. I had ideas of how things could go. And that was my biggest source of frustration. And when I tried to make some changes, it was kind of like, you know, you're just the doctor and you don't make any decisions. And of course, I'm like, yeah, no, I am the doctor. You need me. I'm the one who brings the business in. You know, I'm the one who takes care of the patients. I'm the one who brings the business in. I went to school for all this time. I'm the one who should be making the decisions based on this. Not to minimize anyone's job. You know, I honestly, I think that there's a role for so many things. But when the physicians lost control of managing the patient flow and the experience and the treatment aspects of this, then that's the thing that worries me the most. And I think that happens more and more now. It's interesting because in 2020, my contract was about to be up because I joined an employee practice because that's what I was told everybody did. So, I mean, I I got an interview for a private practice job and I thought, no one does that. So I didn't, ironically. I ended up taking the employed practice job and it was fine. I mean, that's the thing. It's It was fine. And then I started realizing fine was not good enough. I wanted great. I gave up good to go to great. So in 2020, you know, a pandemic, why not just quit your job? Right. You joined the great resignation then. Yeah. Well, it was a little bit even before then. It was just sheer timing. My contract was up. And I talked about this, about how it was sort of a sudden decision. But, you know, looking back, of course, it wasn't. I think 
a lot of these things are going on in their background. You know, when we have this spark of interest, we look around and everything seems possible. Like, that's interesting. And I wondered, and I think we're all scanning around based on our interest and putting things in our back pocket, not even noting it. So when it came up and I was trying to make some changes in the clinic flow and, and, you know, personnel and things like that. And they said, no way. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And they said, you know, are you quitting then? And I was like, yes. Like with absolute certainty, like first time ever, right? Cracks me up to think about it. But you know, it's so funny. And this is why I think it had to have been brewing for a while because I did not feel any panic. I feel like I should have felt panic, but it felt free. It felt free. And I think that I was ready to take a chance. So I just drove around the block and I found a couple buildings and I said, this one, that one, or that one. I made some calls. And, you know, before I knew it, I, I bought a building, renovated it and had a clinic, you know, a few months later. It's interesting though, when you talk about, and I know one thing that in, in your interest of like not putting all your eggs in one basket, employed surgery, you would think that that would be like the most secure job that we'd have. I mean, highly skilled, you know, employed, they need us, things like that. Interesting enough, when I left, I initially had two partners. One went to Nashville, but his choice, and the other one had been around for a while. And I had been there for three years. And when I left, they decided to close the clinic. So the person that was there for a long time thought his job was secure, and it actually wasn't. They said, when she leaves, that we're going to close the clinic, which gave him six weeks notice to close down a you know decade or some odd career. I mean, that's honestly, that's how medicine is being run these days. Yeah. A lot of us would have had almost like a survivor's guilt. Was that hard when they said we're closing the clinic and then that impacted your colleague? Like, how did that, I mean, if you're able to share. So when they told me they were going to do that, I was like, well, that's not right. And I had intended to leave and go solo. I mean, I basically just decided I'm not going to do this, you know, and my partner, you know, we're very different. And, you know, I wasn't trying to hurt him or anything like that. And when they told me, I immediately texted him. I was like, why don't you just join me? You know? And so we did. So oh, great. So that's, it's a very happy ending. So then he joined your practice. He joined my practice and he stayed for two years. Um, I, you know, I think that it's difficult because I can only imagine when things are, because I, I don't think that it was his choice. So it's hard when, you know, as physicians, you don't expect things not to go the way that you would think that they would or have, you know, just like you said with agency, you know, we think that we have agency. And I think that that's the problem is that we realize that we don't. And I think that that was, you know, a very difficult transition for him. Yeah. I mean, I would argue we do. There's certainly a lot of barriers that are developing, right? And I think in a way, I'm jealous of you listening because I'm like, you were able to start your own practice. And for us in emergency medicine, you know, yes, if you're in Texas, you can start a freestanding emergency department. You can't do that in California. You could start in urgent care, but that is very different than an emergency department. And, you know, we are, if you want to practice emergency medicine in what a lot of us went to medical school thinking emergency medicine was, the resuscitations, you're really dependent on a healthcare ecosystem. You've got to have the specialists. So something I didn't know for the medical students listening, you know, I think certain specialties do lend itself a little bit more to having your own practice. And when I was in medical school, that wasn't really a priority for me. 
Now, the happy ending to that story is I do see routes to having my own practice. I have a friend that's emergency medicine that's done functional medicine training, and she has a functional medicine practice, which, again, I would have never thought I would want to do when I was a medical student, but I'm very intrigued by what she's doing. But anyway, I kind of went down a, a different road there. Any reflections on any of that or any threads you want to pull on? You have a great point. And, you know, for me as a general surgeon, I don't have a lot of equipment issues. You know, I bought an ultrasound. I decided to buy an ultrasound instead of a car. It's (laughs) one thing that I, that I've got that, uh, and I, I love it. It's like great. It really helped. But unlike things like Novasco surgery, who's dependent on a lot of equipment issues, ENT, things like that. You know, when you're really depending on a lot of things, it can be a little bit challenging for me. You know, the reason I was able to break free and say, like, if this fails, I mean, my failure is not going to be a big deal. Like, you know, if I buy a building and I renovate it and I open up a clinic and, you know, whatever, if I have to close it, I'm not going to lose much. Versus if you have to, you know, do a lot of investment in different things, or if you rely on an ecosystem or things like that, it would be a little bit harder, but not impossible to have to require a lot more, you know, thought. Right. I'm curious also that courage to say, I'm going to start my own practice. Did you already have kind of a nest egg that maybe made you feel a little bit more confident that like, okay, I'm going to be able to pay my bills for the next six months. Like I'll I'll be fine. That was the most freeing thing that, and it's true because I've, I've always been a little bit interested in finance and, you know, over the years, just, I just learned a little bit over time. Because I do think that that allows us the ability to take chances. And I knew I was ready to invest in something. And when I looked at the the money that we have, and I think a lot of people should do this, is to look at what you have and then ask yourself, I mean, what do I actually need? What do I need to live off of? And I realized like, I could not work for a year and we would still pay all of our bills. And that a lot of that's credit to the military. I didn't have student debt. We got paid the um, rank and benefits of the officer. So, you know, we did very well and we did well in real estate because I invested in that as well. So, you know, I was able to take a lot of chances for that reason. Yeah. And that's one of the things when we're working with people at Revitalize that we emphasize is have your own nest egg because it does help you be courageous and it helps you set boundaries. You know, one of the ways that these corporations or entities trap us is we think we're the golden handcuffs. Oh, I couldn't possibly, I I won't be able to, you know, take care of myself. But if you actually do the math, I mean, my husband and I have done it many times. And when I left a toxic place, it was like, oh, we're totally fine for six months. I mean, there's so many extraneous things we could cut out if we needed to, that it allowed me to say, I'll be all right. I'll be up on my feet in three months and ready to go again. They help so much. And I think a lot of us don't look at money the, you know, in ways that that help us. If we worry about having it, then it always feels like you're chasing it. And I can tell you in private practice, it's difficult because each month you get a variable amount. Like, I wonder how much we're going to get this month. And then also you have the inevitable slipping back in and saying, what if I would make more doing X, you know? And that's the the thing that I think holds us back a lot is worrying about how much you make. And I actually had a podcast episode calling comparison is the thief of joy. It's how RVUs make you miserable. Oh, I got, we'll link to that in the show notes. I've got to listen to that. It's funny because like if you use one measure to measure your job, you can 
you know, decide one way or another whether your job is great or not. And it, the whole, you know, giving a spoiler alert to all of this, it's it, when I paid attention to RVUs and I compared like dollar per RVU, it caused distress. It's like, I can be making more doing this. But when I look at the ability, like I have the ability now to have a change in my schedule if I want. I have created Wednesday off. I mean, I actually, you know, went down to like four days. Now that, of course, I filled with a lot of stuff, but, you know, I was able to change and create the the career path that I want and the clinic path that I want. And it's all those that I was able to gain. But when I looked at that one measure, I would drive myself nuts. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books. Right. I'm guessing, knowing a little bit about you and, and your vibe, is you're able to practice surgery and care for patients in a way that you feel is right. Yes, without question. It would be very difficult for me to go to a, a, a time where I couldn't. I mean, I've always been interested in systems and checklists and additional educational material and, and really, you know, making a patient focused. But I really do have the ability to create the, the patient experience that I would want if I were the patient or my family member was a patient. And it's really helped in this community because as a lot of these places are getting bigger, it separates away from the patient. And so I always tell my my cancer patients, I was like, you know, every step of the way, it's going to be challenging. And I'm the easiest person to get a hold of. So you just let us know if you need something. And that really helps, you know, to be able to be really there for patients. And, you know, that part is is really deeply meaningful. Right. And you just, you just said it, it's meaningful, right? And I think that's why most of us went into medicine was to have that connection. And what is the price on that? What's the RVU on that, on that soulful moment that you're having? Oh, yeah. And, you know, and me and my crying about dollars for RVU, like at the, at the end of the year, I'm always fine, you know, doing really well. It's just, but like each month, because it's a different number. And, you know, I have to kind of like sit down with myself every month and go, okay, you know, we're not going to make this mean anything good or bad about us. It's just a number. You know, and we remind ourselves all the things that we're doing because it's not for the faint of heart. It is a little bit challenging. So there's definitely a lot to think about. But I do, you know, just want to bring something relatively related is in my in my coaching group, I bring up the idea of positivity rounds. You know, it's like on your rounds when you're you're seeing people, whether it's on shifts in the ER or you know, on the floor is, it's just a write down what people say. I mean, we don't actually hear what they say. I had a patient yesterday who said, you saved my life. And I stepped back and I was like, hey, you know what I actually did? You know, right? We don't even think about it. I mean, I, yep. I started writing it down and like the things that they say are unbelievably amazing. I totally agree with you. There's something, I mean, I think all of us agree that Humility is very important in medicine. I also think in some ways it goes overboard. And, you know, I try to tell my residents, the stuff that you're doing is definitely on par with a pro athlete. 
know, it hundred percent is. I mean, getting a difficult airway in a kid that's you know choked on something, or I was in a van with a plastic surgeon last week, and I had never heard this. You'll, you'll probably laugh. She was telling me that for these micro sutures, you hold your breath, that even the movement of your breathing could affect the suture placement. And I was like, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, we really need to kind of sit in that and be proud of the craft, everything we've learned and the service it's providing for our patients. A hundred percent agree. And I think what happens is that it's part of it's the hierarchical aspect of medicine. You know, we're always just something. I'm just an intern. I'm just a resident. I'm just a chief resident. I'm just a junior attending. I'm just a middle attending. You know, everything is just just. And so the hierarchy automatically causes some minimization of everything. And then, I mean, when you're surrounded by greatness, and we really are, I mean, we're surrounded like by the top 1% of the population. (laughs) You know, it's hard to feel special when you're like, just like everybody else. And I think that it's always nice for us to kind of step back and say, gosh, I mean, look, at all that I've done. Like I could stop right now and, you know, mic drop them, you know, still on top. A hundred percent. I love that you just brought up the just thing. I interrupted one of my colleagues at dinner, dinner the other night. We were interacting with a whole bunch of, we were at this conference with new doctors and some were actually not physicians. And she said, I'm just a ER doc. And I said, you are an emergency doctor. You served during the pandemic. Like, no, you're an emergency doctor crazy. It's crazy that we do that. And, you know, I even catch myself still doing that uh, every now and then. So Sheree Johnson, which listeners will recognize her, she's uh, my coach. She's has a psychology background. And Sheree has this concept of the ego that we're always trying to figure out, especially as you're maturing and life experience, don't, or Brene Brown will say, don't puff up and don't shrink. And I think I'm still trying to like find that, you know, there's moments that we puff up, no, this is what I'm saying should happen. I'm putting my foot down. That's puffing up versus shrinking. And how can you walk and, you know, that strong back, soft heart dance that we're trying to get? On that note, actually, do you have some tips for that? Because the surgical community, certainly there's some stereotypes out there. I would say probably more on the puff up side than the shrinking side. Talking with you, I feel very at ease that you are very obviously accomplished, but you don't have this bravado. There's not like you're approachable still. I instantly feel this like trusting sense with you. How have you developed that? What's your trick? I love that you brought up the whole stereotype thing because, you know, in in my groups, um, I coach primarily women surgeons. And, you know, we talk about this, all of us at some point in our career, you know, tried to wear the coat of the surgeon stereotype, you know, like being hostile. At some point, it just decided just doesn't suit you, you know? And there was like definitely a life-changing moment where I was like, I mean, you mean I don't have to be that way? I could just like be myself? And so that really helped because when I was more myself, the one thing I was happier, I didn't have to try so hard. And it just felt, you know, real and, and certain. I've never really had the smallest of egos, but I also, you know, kind of put it in perspective too. So I could only be myself. And so that's actually really my only directive is to be myself and, you know, really understand that, you know, when I know who I am, I approach people in with, I think, a level of certainty that I'm not confused who I am. And I know I hear a lot of time about, 
you know, women in here and women there. And, and I think what changes is when I walk into the room, I'm not confused. I'm not confused at all. I, I don't get mad if someone calls me Amy and not doctor because I, I joke and I say, I'm not so insecure. I need a reminder. Gosh, I love that. That is just so, that's such a mindset shift that if you know who you are, you're walking in your integrity, you're okay. It just kind of slides off because you know who you are at the end of the day and you're going to sleep okay because you've walked in your integrity all day. It's so much easier. I mean, it really is. And I think if you feel like you're not in integrity, is ask yourself, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, am I trying to change my mind? You know, someone is going to have their own opinion of me regardless. And when I feel at ease and certain, then the patient does not have to worry about me. You know, the patient now gets to feel comfortable with with that. It, it does provide a little bit of, um, it's just congruity, you know, like they, they know what they're getting. And so now we focus on them. So it, it's just, I think it seems to work. Well, for our listeners, this is really part one of a two-part conversation. So we're going to start wrapping up now, and then we're going to hop onto your podcast. Can you tell our listeners how to connect with you and about your podcast? And I'm sure somebody may want to reach out to you for coaching as well. So tell us all that, and then we'll see our listeners back on part two with your podcast. Sure. The best way to reach me is um, bosssurgery.com. So you'll find access to the podcast. That's the Boss Business of Surgery series. I'm about to drop my 100th episode. And there's lots of things from difficult partners to if you're dealing with a bad leader, how to deal with complications, how to stop hating clinic, you know, physician marketing, there's all kinds of things. And I'm smart enough to pick great guests like Dr. Austin myself. I love your podcast. I've been like binging it and I'm an emergency doc. And I was like, you know, oh, I don't know if I'll like this. She's a surgeon. We're so different. No, there's tons of overlap. I know you're, you're discovering our secrets that they're just people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the also, I think probably the best podcast guide is the Become the Boss MD Success Beyond Residency uh, book that I had. So after like it was about a year ago, I started pulling together a lot of lessons from the podcast and all the things I learned from coaching and then put them into you know, this five-part book that also references a lot of the episodes too. So again, you know, there's like a hundred now. So it helps really go through the lessons that we were not taught in residency. It's basically the book that I needed. And so my punchline for some of these is like, you can make your own mistakes. Just don't make mine. Here's your guide. 100%. No, I love that. I'm working on my book too. And that's how I I feel is I have this like, energy in me that I have to get this out as soon as possible because you have so many of the same conversations. And it's not that I don't want to have those. I want to help everyone I can individually, but there's not enough time. Yes. And, you know, sometimes it's just like hearing something you already know, but it's said in a different way that somehow like lets the key turn in a different way where something falls into place. It just clicks into place when you hear it a different way. So that's how I kind of pulled it all together, which was taking these lessons and me making it easy to read. It's it's a breeze to read and, you know, really just like helping people understand some of the things that they need to know. I love it. Well, it's been a joy to have you on this podcast. We didn't even get to all the questions that I want to get to. The next time you come back, I do want to talk about surgeons and sleep deprivation. So I really think an important topic. So open invitation. Let's talk again soon. Invitation accepted. 
Thanks for listening to The Revitalizing Doctor, a project of Revitalize Women Physician Circle. Our mission is to connect women physicians and allies through innovative, value-based coaching methods that align trust, support, accountability, and skill development to ignite the courage and clarity necessary to take bold actions, create change, and thrive. If you're interested in working with us, check out our website at peoplealwayshcc.com revitalize or email us at revitalizemm.info at gmail.com. This podcast represents the views of our host and guest. It does not reflect the views of any institution we work for or with.